Hello, heroes. I'm Hannah Schaefer. And I'm Evan Rowland. Welcome to Design Doc. At a game convention four or five years ago, I took a spot at the table for a collaboration-heavy alternate history game. The game started with a lot of shared world-building, and I was excited to dive in and create a world alongside the other players. There wasn't any formalized structure or rules around creative contribution. Everyone talked excitedly about the things they'd like to see, and I chimed in here and there, despite being relatively new to role-playing. At one point, the discussion turned to a specific historical event. It was a moment in history I didn't know much about, but the other players did, and the conversation quickly veered in that direction. At the time, I was too self-conscious to say, I don't actually know much about this event, so if we base our timeline on this event, I'm not sure if I'll know what to do in the game. So I didn't say anything. Play continued, and I receded into the shadows. The GM eventually identified that something had gone wrong, But instead of taking a break and checking in about world-building before continuing with the next phase of the game, the GM and other players assumed I was shy and, helpfully, started filling in answers for me. Play a conquistador, somebody said. War is being declared, so you'll want to go over here, someone else said. Not only had I lost my connection to the setting, I now had also lost my voice in the game. It's true, I was shy— but not so shy that I couldn't have been brought back to the table with few intentional rules about how collaboration works, when players can contribute, and what to do when a player has gone silent. Sometimes a good GM can step up when the system's rules aren't helping, but in Questlandia 2, there is no GM, so those rules will be all the more important. How can we keep the excitement and ideas flowing without leaving the quieter players out of the fun? That's what we'll be trying to tackle in this episode. So there's been a part of our playtesting that we haven't talked about in the podcast before now, which is that we realized early on we needed to divide up some of the creative input between different players. This came up while we were doing you know, initial world building kingdom setup stuff. And it just became immediately clear, like, okay, somebody wants to put in a first suggestion about what this world might be like. They don't want to put in the next one. And so we started using an impromptu mechanic. We got some tokens, we gave everybody a single token. And when you contributed something, you'd put in your token. As soon as everybody had put it in, their single token. Put in in. Put in in. Put in. <laughs> put in in. Put in. <laughs> as soon as everyone had put in their single token, everybody gets their token back. So what that system does is it makes it so nobody gets to say two things before everybody else has said one. We didn't exactly define when you put in your token. Like, what do you say with that token put in? We just kept it casual and just said, like, you know, okay, you just suggested something, put in yours, put in yours. And we've been using that on and off throughout all of the playtesting. 
This token system came from the idea of ownership in Questlandia 1, and the way that ownership worked was that when a question is asked about an element of the world, you write that element on an index card, and suddenly it is, like, imbued with importance. Um, and then people can ask, you know, additional questions about it, but the person who owns that element, so say if you own the... Mushroom fairies is the only example I ever give. Like it's like there's like no other creative seed in my mind. I have probably said mushroom fairies on this podcast like 20 times. Uh, let's go for 21. There's two there's like mushroom fairies and then something with like slug kings. So I need to I need suggestions for like yeah, cuz at some point probably I owned those in a future, you know, a future game. <laughs> in a future game. <laughs> We're like timeline hopping here. <laughs> Please send us suggestions. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we're visitors from the future. <laughs> it's also as as people on the east coast of the U.S. probably know, and I mean probably elsewhere in the country right now. We are in the middle of a terrible heat wave. Yesterday it was like a hundred degrees in Massachusetts, yeah. where we live. So we are uh, <laughs> we're keeping it together. Yeah, barely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the tokens and ownership both come from the fact that Questlandia is a GMless game. Right. In an RPG that has a GM, the GM has a social role, not just a mechanical one. And sometimes it is mechanized or explicitly talked about in the rules, sometimes not. But the GM is there to also make sure that everybody's getting their say. They're getting, you know, their characters are getting an equal amount in the limelight. People aren't getting talked over. If everybody looks like they need a break, the GM might call for a break. They're running the social atmosphere of the table. <laughs> GMs never call for a break. <laughs> <laughs> At least not in role-playing games that I've played. Who does call for the break? Me. The parents? <laughs> the parents. <laughs> Simon, you've been down there for six hours. Well, as somebody who came to role-playing games, you know, post-child, post post the period in my life where there would be somebody calling for a break for me, I felt like I've had to bring sort of my own self-parenting to yeah. game so you know i'm all about the breaks and the snacks and you know making sure you're a force of good in the role-playing <laughs> game world yeah so questlandia has no gm questlandia one it is a one-shot game campaign questlandia we are experimenting with the possibility of creating a campaign game that has no gm with it, we are taking on the social challenges of how does the table manage uh, players who like to creatively contribute a lot? How does the table manage players who want to contribute creatively but are a little more quiet or tend to kind of seed the, you know, speaking space to other people? Mm -hmm. uh, how does the game and how does the table manage uh, just like keeping the energy and keeping the contribution flowing when nobody ha has anything to say at all. That is like when a GM would chime in. Right. And ownership or tokens alone aren't going to do this. Like, you know, the game is going to need to provide solid guidance for like 
who's is sort of forced to be the GM? Who is forced to speak up when everybody feels like nobody has anything to say? Hopefully that will never happen in this state. <laughs> um, There's also the question of how hard to push it mechanically and how much to rely on the people at the table to be making their own calls. Because people at a table will sometimes just be like, oh, Hannah, do you want to chime in on this one? There doesn't have to be a rule for that, except in other tables that'll never, ever happen. Yeah. So this is what this episode is going to be about. Uh, You know, will the game, when, when things sort of stagnate at the table, will the game say, if things stagnate, somebody should contribute something? Or will the rule say, turn to page 37 for a list of 27 things to do when things stagnate. Roll a 27-sided die. (laughs) Which, of course, the game will have because Mm -hmm. we love adding new systems every week. Or will the rule say something like, if things stagnate, this specific thing happens. The junk poets get, you know, uh, if there's more than 10 seconds of silence at the table, the junk poets get cast out of their worlds back into the library. Yeah, you are banished to the shadow realm forever. <laughs> and you can never play the game again. You failed creatively. So <laughs> Put your book in a hole. <laughs> so these are the things that we're dealing with right now. So I guess we should start by talking about what some of our goals are for the social atmosphere that we're trying to create at the table. We have a few goals and they're they're almost but maybe not quite at odds. First of all, we want to make sure everybody's involved, right? Everybody gets a chance to speak up. So we want social mechanics that support quieter players and give new ideas to them and create empty spaces for them to fill where they don't have to compete. And I guess the other side of that coin is suppressing the over-talkers or the dominating personalities at the table who will, you know, fill to the size of the container with excited ideas about the world, and if unchecked, will end up owning a disproportionate amount of the creative setting. And I mean, suppressing might be a strong word. Imprisoning. (laughs) Um, because it's not a player whose cup runneth over with creative contra- with enthusiastic creative contributions is often a great player to have in a role-playing game. Yeah. I mean, it's about shaping the container for them so that they can fill up a beautiful space with their beautiful ideas <laughs> and they're still... Plenty of room for everybody else. <laughs> We're really taking the Montessori approach to game design. Aren't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> you beautiful, beautiful overtalker, you. Let's make a collage. You with your endless stream of beautiful words. <laughs> <laughs> for me personally, I feel like I'm on both sides of this description. I'm not at all good at competing for space if it seems like there's a competition to see who gets to say the next thing in or even if what if there's a number of excited people if they're just throwing out ideas real quick i don't find a space to get in and so i'll just get quieter and quieter and shut out and let people do their own thing because i don't like fighting but 
if there is space for me to be involved and be talking, I'm one of those uh, runneth over kind of people. I have lots of ideas and I want to just, I, I need to keep myself in check because I will, you know, just be like, oh, I have a cool idea for that and for that and for that. So I want systems that help me on both sides where they create space where I could put my input in and they create limits so that I can be content knowing that I'm saying my part and I'm not stepping over anybody else. I'm a passive aggressive contributor. Like <laughs> if I feel like if I feel like the GM or the table is doing a good job sort of moderating the social balance, I'm like look at what a good role player I am. Mm -hmm. Look at how balanced my contributions are. And if I feel like the GM uh, forgot about me or the other players are sort of stepping over me, I'm like, I'll show you how awkward and horrible this game can be. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you what a real bad role-playing game is like. That's bad. <laughs> you're, a, you're a punisher. I am. Yeah. yeah, it's something that I've noticed. You bring the hammer down. <laughs> the hanner. <laughs> <laughs> it is too hot to be recording this. Um, uh, it's like I'm like swimming through the air of this podcast right now. It's so hot. Yes. So we need to create a game. What if we called the tokens hanners? <laughs> You have to slam it down, though. <laughs> Slammer or a hainer? <laughs> like a pog. Slam your hainer. Uh, yeah. Okay. Turn to chapter three, slamming your hainer. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to mark this episode as explicit now? <laughs> Is this whole episode bonus content? <laughs> so what do you want from the rules? Do you want rules to do the punishing for you? Turn to page 37 for a list of punishments. <laughs> it sounds kind of satisfying. So ideally, the rules would not do punishing. The rules would prevent the type of scenario that needed to be punished. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're going to try to prevent the need for punishment. And even if we were punishing, it would be more of a, like a rehabilitation-focused kind of punishment. That's true. Yeah, sort of like a, a, a re-guiding back to... You kind know, of like a clockwork orange, you know, <laughs> like keep the eyeballs open. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're getting off track. So to tackle this in Questlandia 1, we had ownership. Ownership had the same rule as I described for the tokens, that everybody can have ownership of one thing before anybody gets ownership of two. So it's equally distributed between all the players. But it didn't quite have the same rule as the tokens because we're going to be talking about how the why the tokens aren't working. And I felt like there was some essential quality of Questlandia 1 ownership that was working, aside from the fact that people sometimes forgot to use it, which means probably it wasn't working. <laughs> the, the tokens are super different. Um, I only mean in terms of the distribution between players it's similar oh that nobody can everybody own an additional element until everybody yeah yeah in that kind of pacing mechanism that was still there but ownership made you a little tyrant over a certain element of the fiction you can be like i am the lord of the sewage system of this 
land, I get to say what's true about it. And you're allowed to ask people for advice. You're like, what do you think? But then you can say, no, that's not true. Yeah, as poop lord. (laughs) So as poop lord, you have first and final say over all matters of poop. Mm -hmm. All fecal matters. (laughs) (laughs) So so let's talk just for a, a minute more about ownership in Questlandia 1. Because there's a part of me that's like, I like that system. I don't think that anything needs to be changed. Like, I think that the writing them on index cards and the way that ownership gets distributed really works. But I have this sense, I have the sense that a lot of people playing Questlandia probably did not upkeep creating new ownership cards. I can't even think of a time where that happened, honestly. <laughs> like during the game. Yeah. You'd create them in the beginning, and then new elements would be created, but they would be created in this flow of play where it was like the process still happened around them, like questions would still get asked, but no, it wasn't formalized. I mean, at that point, it was just role-playing. <laughs> I think we didn't have the flow right. Like, we, we had rules for what you do. We said, if you're introducing a new concept say, mushroom fairies. (laughs) We pause the game. We give ownership of the mushroom fairies to a player, somebody who doesn't have more ownership cards than anybody else, somebody who isn't directly involved with that thing, somebody who's excited about it. Then all the other players ask a question about that thing. They say, how long do the mushroom fairies live? Why are the mushroom fairies part of every world that we explore? And... Once everybody asks their questions and the new owner answers all of them, we return to the story at hand. I think that that the truth is that's kind of an annoying interlude when you have some actual flow going on in your scene. It's like if you're reading a book and the author gets super sidetracked in some detail of the world building and you're like, no, 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 I was the story. I was enjoying the story. And you skip ahead. I think that's what our players are doing. So you're saying that that, okay, so it like created this kind of arbitrary stop of flow in a place where flow was, was, was flowing. Yeah. I think the time when a new element was introduced to the world just naturally tended to happen when things were kind of exciting and moving forwards. So that process doesn't, didn't seem to be working the ongoing ownership. So The tokens that we've been using have been very unstructured so far, but is there anything you can say that has been working about them? So there's a few reasons that I like tokens. One of them is maybe kind of incidental to our narrative intentions with them, but I am a tactile person. I like rolling dice. I like having something to sort of keep in my hand. And there's something about a token that feels good to put in, but also there's like a social, it even feels good on the social level of like, okay, I've put in my token, now creative control is out of my hands. Totally. Uh, like it, there's there's both a, when when the tokens are working, it is exciting to contribute when you have something to say. And it feels good to know that you don't have to contribute again for a while. You know, like it's taken the pressure off and you get to put your enthusiasm forward. But 
with those good things, it, it introduces sort of problems along the same axis. Those problems being, what if the flow of play does kind of stutter and you do have something to say that could keep it going, but now you don't have a token? And there's right. this question of like, can I contribute right now? Or would that be, you know, is that now against the rules? Or the somewhat opposite situation of you being the final person with a token. And you're like, uh, well, I don't know, fucking mushroom fairies. And everybody's looking at you. <laughs> and they're like, nope, can't do mushroom fairies again. <laughs> we did mushroom fairies already. <laughs> <laughs> and both of those, I think, have happened in our playtesting. Definitely, definitely. So the tokens do have some issues in terms of flow of play. Yeah. They are not quite working. There's still a lot of questions about when it's appropriate to use a token and what, like, oh, do I have this little thing that I want to say? Do I have to put in a token for this? So if we are to keep them, they still need a lot of work on that front in terms of designing the system. Um, what about the tokens mechanically? Well, it's part of the same thing, right? It's the it's the question of when exactly do you put in a token? And if that answer isn't like three words long, people are going to forget it and have to look it up and you're going to need a little quick right sheet. Right fucking now. Yeah. <laughs> Drop that hanner. Uh even drop that hammer. People are going to need a little reference rule sheet. <laughs> yeah, that's to be probably like, a little. What bit. do I do with the hammer? Oh, I drop it. Yeah. Okay. Wait. The yes, the hammer. I drop it. The the basic thing is that it's it's mental load. It's it's more rules you have to memorize, and if it's such an essential part of the flow of the game that if it itself is breaking the flow, obviously it's not doing its job. It's doing the exact opposite of its job. So it needs to be smooth as silk to put in a token. You just know 100%, oh, this is definitely a case where I put in a token. And there's just no question. And how can it be that simple? If we're going to be using it in all these different parts of the game and creating the world, creating your characters, in deciding the order of scenes or introducing new problems or features to scenes or adding information about the world during play. That's a lot of different situations to cover and to have an elegant rule system that covers it all. And right now, I mean, you know, we are in the early stages of playtesting this game. So we're going kind of like fast and loose with like all of these potential systems to use for everything from world creation to character building to conflict resolution to idea contribution. But right now we have like major system overload in the game. Yeah, you don't want more than a couple systems. And by systems, at least what I'm referring to are like the elements that you have to turn to to do something in the game. So whether that's like tracking something on a little progress tracker or rolling dice to resolve things or drawing cards to resolve things or looking to the symbol reader to create something like, uh, or now with tokens, I am of the mind, we've talked about this a little bit, and I am of the mind that there should not be more than two in a role 
playing game. I'm stuttering because I'm like saying something that's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, a Schaefer thing. Yeah, I yeah, know. And I don't put it in your hanner. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not like a declaration that I think shouldness needs to like apply to all role playing games, but I just want to be mindful of like the number of systems that we're introducing and like which one of those are really which ones are purposeful in the game. I was playing um Blades in the Dark the other day and it felt like it had two main systems that it was falling back. It's a big book of rules, lots and lots of stuff to go over, but most of it comes down to two things, which is rolling a bunch of dice and picking out the best result. And drawing a little circle, a little pie chart, and, you know, filling it in piece by piece to mark time or progress. That's mostly it. It's rolling a bunch of dice, picking the best, or making your pie chart and filling it in. And then everything else feeds into those two systems about when you do that, how many dice you're rolling, how many slices this pie chart's going to have, all that. So... I like that. I like how manageable it is. We were talking about it with Monster Hearts too, right? And so like, you know, the Apocalypse World classic thing is you roll a couple dice. Maybe you add some modifiers to that. But in general, you roll a couple dice and certain swaths of results, like one to six, seven to ten, or is it seven to nine? Seven to nine. Seven to nine, ten plus always are the same thing, mm-hmm. right? More or less, right? Bad, compromise, good. So would you say that if Monster Hearts had two systems, the systems would be the dice and strings? Yeah, that's what I'd say. Strings are kind of their own management system that you're dealing with. Which if you've never played Monster Hearts, strings are things you can use to sort of, you know, manipulate other people to your will. Yeah, in certain moments. They give you, you some narrative control over certain things and sometimes tie in with the dice. So I feel like one of our goals in, you know, as we start to kind of narrow the design of Questlandia is to hone in on like, all right, is this game going to have a symbol reader and dice? Or is it going to have dice and cards or dice and tokens or tokens and cards? Um, but to really start to narrow down the number of like mechanical elements that we're bringing in. But with that, and because I know that there are, you know, some neat ideas that we've introduced and maybe don't want to leave behind, like the symbol reader, you had had a good point, Evan, about like the book itself as a system that sort of could manage a bunch of smaller systems. And I'm wondering if you could like speak to that. Well, my thought was, was if Quislandia 2 is going to have two systems, one of them might be the dice, which we're working on, the dice that determine how you how well you do at achieving your goal and how the world is impacted by it. But then the other system could be something like consulting a page. And consulting a page always works the same way. You go to this page that describes this special scenario, like entering a world or exiting a world or gaining ownership over something or evolving your junk poet or changing the junk poet world. Whatever it is, 
it links to a page. And you go to that page, and it has instructions that everybody follows. And the idea is that that's something you do at the table. It's not something where you memorize that, and then you don't use the book anymore. It would literally be like, get that page out, put it in the middle, and do this process. Use this symbol reader that's on this page to create the initial parts of your world, or use the cartography guide on this page to create a map of it. And that way there could be lots of little systems and little games that help you explore different facets of the worlds. You know, this is how you make a government. Go to this page. So what was the game in like the 90s, uh, the Nintendo 64 game with Wario? Was it Wario Party? Was Wario Party a thing? WarioWare. WarioWare. I don't know if that was, was that 64? Was it? Maybe it was GameCube. <laughs> Such a good game. <laughs> so so I think that that makes me think that like Questlandia 2 has this WarioWare element. That's a game where you play uh, very short mini games one after another. It'll throw a little like, eat this banana and you mash the A key enough times and you've eaten the <laughs> banana. Good job. And like you can get better at them, but you don't have to have memorized how like the the process by which you play each game is sort of immediate and obvious. Right. They're and simple like, games and they come the with instructions. You're going to press the A key again and again and again until you have eaten the most cake. Yeah. I, I'm so into having very short, simple games or mini games or processes that you use for certain aspects of the world where it's just like, we're going to create a weird creature. Epidiah's uh, Vast and Starlit has some of this in the expansions, little mini games you can use to develop alien species or creatures. Evan, you know what this is sort of getting at, though. Remember when we talked about our worst ideas and I had talked about, I mean, you know, this is part of, this is part of team three ring binder is that like when we go, (laughs) I mean, not necessarily, this is getting into the idea of like potentially sort of like serialized additions to the system. Uh, It's almost like you're arguing for like, yeah, and over time now the Beasts expansion. You're making for creating some very beasts. powerful eye expressions. At I me. don't know. It's- well, I'm really excited because I think that it's like at the end of the day, you know, everything comes back to this idea being correct. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know how people just have to like come back to an idea on their own to think that they came up with it? Mm-hmm. That's you. You're waiting for me to come around. Yeah. Well, I think you have. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you just came up with my idea. This is like a barrage of hanners. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I might be coming around to it a little bit. A little bit. It's 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 just like the mechanisms for three-ring binders can be so... Well, we don't have to have... I mean, I think what you're saying more is not that these would be added over time, but the game would ship complete with all of these sort of miniature systems, these mini-games. Yeah, I mean... We've also discussed, we, we should, really shouldn't even hint at it in this episode, but we discussed a, a different approach to the physical element of the game that was based on a map, like an old school driving map that unfolds. Oh, yeah. Lots of little no, quadrants. we can't. We can't. It's too much for this episode. I, for, I actually right. forgot about that. Well, everybody listening should also forget about it. <laughs> it's a really cool idea. And I think I have... Mm, 
it's a really cool idea. And I think it's one that incorporates some of like all of these systems we've talked about. I actually, I yeah. totally forgot about this. It is, it is kind of the answer to a three ring binder that you find acceptable. Yeah. And it's a, it's very classy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, not, not like we're talking about it. Though. It's actually the first idea where I think it's such a good idea that this is the first time that I've had this instinct to want to keep it secret. And that hasn't happened yet in this podcast where I'm like, <laughs> where I feel like kind of, uh, you know, every listener it. is just going to rush out. Yeah, I'm like, don't like, take oh, this idea. Oh, damn, maps, this is really brilliant. good. I'm well, it's, it. not, it's not just maps. It's like, cool maps. Special. <laughs> You're giving it all away. <laughs> <laughs> now they know it's going to be cool and special. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with social dynamics. No, that has nothing to do with social dynamics. Regardless of what our two systems are for Questlandia, the idea is that if we have tokens, they should be a part of that and not another layer on top of them. And so what that might mean is no tokens at all, but just if we're doing the sort of mini games on different pages approach, each one of those pages comes with certain rules for sharing ownership and governing the social dynamics of it. Or maybe it ties into the dice game. And instead of tokens, you're literally holding dice. And you're putting in dice and taking away dice, and that plays into the rolls you make at the end of the turn. Those are the two approaches that make sense to me. Tying it into some of the existing systems of the game, trying to make it specific to the circumstances that you're using it in, meaning it's not one overall system that applies to everything in the game, but there's a special way to do it for world building that's very clear and in front of everybody and a special way for, you know, in the middle of a scene, dividing up creative roles. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And, you know, even though I was saying that, like, it is, while I would not want to apply the two-system rule arbitrarily to every role-playing game ever created, it may be a helpful limiter for me personally for actually making progress on Questlandia 2 within the next few months. I feel like role-playing is tricky and getting into that place where there is a flow where everybody is naturally progressing a scene is so special and we want to avoid disrupting that when it manages to come about with rules that people are going to forget and be like, Oh, hold, hold, hold up, everybody. We need to look that up. It shouldn't feel like that. It's okay if it's sort of like we come to the kingdom. Okay, let's turn to the the castle page because we're going to discover this castle together. But when it's disrupting the flow because it's just a system that nobody can remember, you've broken something special. I mean, I think the most precious and magical thing that can happen in a role-playing game is that moment where the flow of the story, like where everybody is telling the story on this frequency where you forget that you're Mm role-playing, you forget that you are bound by this system that has these rules that everybody had to learn or that everybody's still learning. You forget that this story is unwritten and you are just like, the story is like 
just continuing forward with everybody dropping all of the self-consciousness and like the brain overload that makes it so hard to role play in the first place. Yeah. I think earlier in this episode, you asked me what the goals are for a social set of social mechanics. And I think that's a much better answer than the one I gave. (laughs) It's to get everybody to that state where they don't have to worry about the rules or about talking over each other or about coming up with an idea. And they just naturally feel like they are in it and part of it and ready to push the story forward. It really is a special moment. I'm trying to think of what to compare it to. I mean, one thing is like when, have you ever done that exercise when everybody in a room is supposed to like, you start like singing a note and you all pick a different note and then you sustain this note. And after 30 seconds, everyone in the room has converged on the same note. Huh, no. Oh, it's really cool. People sort of your pitch adjust to the same uh, note. It sounds lovely. (laughs) Do they always go towards the same note? Is it like a B flat? I think it is the same note. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, so I'll have to look it up. So we want to get everybody on the same note, but then supporting them in a really natural way in the places where that note stutters. With that, it's time for your thoughts and questions. So this week, uh, due to the extreme heat and also the fact that I was in the process of moving, I don't have our notes in front of me right now, but we actually did get a number of emails and comments. We got a bunch of great comments. Yeah, there were a lot of really good, because what was our last episode? Was it about, our last episode, we talked about goals. Right. There were good thoughts about goals. I feel like we should do a, uh, we could just do a whole episode about, uh, viewer input and how that's shaped our processes here. Oh, that's a really good idea. How it's different to have a whole gallery of voices weighing in on these different matters. Yeah, so there were there were a lot of good things said on Twitter, by email, and on G Plus about goals, and I apologize for not having those notes in front of me right now, so maybe we can come back to them next week. If those comments don't find a place in our next episode, we might be able to include them as a bonus audio clip, which is available as a reward for the OneShot Network Patreon supporters. So maybe we will include that feedback as bonus content. I think that's good bonus content and good incentive to support the OneShot Network, which has done so much for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we like to do little things in return. So what do you think about this idea of mini games? That is maybe not the appropriate idea for what these are, but I like it. It's there's something kind of spicy about it. It's like, oh, mini games, because a lot of people don't like, you know, mini games. Yeah. Get me to the real game, please. (laughs) Proper games. So let us know what you think. Uh, Is there traction behind this idea? If you want to talk to us about mini games or three ring binders or serialized additions to Questlandia 2, you can Or email- social dynamics. Or so- that, that, I mean, that was presumably. Well- <laughs> oh, yeah. Or what this episode was about. Um, yeah. How do you balance social dynamics at the table? Uh, does your GM let you take bathroom breaks? Or am I the only one? <laughs> Tell us this and more by emailing us at designdocpod at gmail.com or tweeting to us at designdocpod on Twitter. 
You can also tweet to us personally. I am Han Bandit on Twitter. And I am A Drawn Novel. The Design Doc intro-outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. And as we already mentioned, Design Doc is hosted by the One Shot Network. One Shot has all sorts of great shows, actual play shows, role-playing game, interview shows, shows about creating characters across various systems or adventures across various systems. And they have a Patreon. So go and look them up on Patreon because they do amazing things for creators. I think that they are one of the strongest voices in the industry for good. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, since we launched our podcast, our own website sales for our games have increased significantly. And I can't stress how meaningful this is to our lives directly. Uh, I mean, we are in the process of making a transition into being full-time game designers. Brian Van Slyke, who is our other co-conspirator and collaborator and the other member of Make Big Things, just had a baby Mm -hmm. earlier this month. He is a new first-time father. Uh, So One Shot is directly contributing to our lives and our livelihoods and our families. So please, if you have a dollar, go and throw it to one shot. They're very sweet. (laughs) Yeah, They're they're helping to create the infrastructure for this to be an actual profession and a way to make a living and a way to do this professionally instead of as a uh, desperate hobby. So please give them a dollar a month, Uh, you know, with enough dollars that really adds up and it helps them keep bringing you great shows. So if you like Design Doc, which is one of their shows, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and it fills us with Determination. determination. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.